Welcome to Becoming Byzantine, a webinar series focused on the Catechism, Christ or Pascha. In this series, we explore the faith, worship, and life of Byzantine churches. I'm Father Daniel Dozier, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, Mr. Robert Klesko, and Father Michael Wynn. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the series. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome everyone to episode eight in our Becoming Byzantine series on the holy mysteries of service, the uh, holy mysteries of crowning or marriage and holy orders. Great to be with everyone again. Uh, wonderful to, to have our wonderful, excellent, and most awesome panelists with us as always, uh, Father Daniel Dozier. Hi, Father Daniel. How are you doing? Doing great, thank you. Nice to see everyone. Father Michael Wynn. Father Michael, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Excellent. And Father Deacon Anthony Degrani. Father Deacon, how are you? Fantastic. Good to see you guys. Excellent. Great to see everyone. Good to be with you, as always, uh, to, to continue to go through Christ our Pascha. Um, talking about two very important sacraments to our church today. So, um couple of housekeeping announcements, um, but before that, before I do housework, I often forget to pray. So let's pray first. <laughs> so Father Daniel, can you lead us in prayer, please? Absolutely. Blessed is our God always, now and ever, and forever. Amen. I want to uh, say uh, a prayer to the Most Holy Theotokos uh, today. So Rejoice, O Mother of God, Virgin Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, for you have borne Christ, the Savior and Redeemer of our souls. And we flee to your shelter of your mercy, O Virgin Mother of God. Do not reject our prayers of anguish, but free us from tribulations, O only pure and blessed one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Father Daniel. Appreciate that. All right now to the, the housekeeping I was doing a lot of housekeeping today, so forgive me. I'm gonna. I'm still reeling from all the work I've been doing. Uh, first and foremost, thank you very much to our sponsors. Just a reminder: this series is co-sponsored by the Ruthenian Catholic Eparchy of Phoenix, and also um, our wonderful uh, new sponsor, the Sheptinsky Institute up there in Canada, Father Michael's home country. So we're very, very blessed in our. In our sponsors because we need to keep this good work rolling. Um, we've been hearing from a lot of you who watch. Um, minds and hearts are being transformed, so we really need to keep this good work going. And should you want to continue to support us, um, it's a very good idea to uh, reach into your pockets from time to time, as Mother Angelica was often want of saying, uh, your bill. Um, to keep lights on and, and uh, keep everything rolling. So you can make a donation by going to uh, Father Daniel's uh, parish website. Now I'm going to post the link to his site right there in uh, the chat. I'll make that to everyone. And if you drop down on hit that uh, giving page to the bottom left-hand side, you'll see a little box that says Becoming Byzantine. Uh, please, uh, if you feel so inclined, if the spirit moves you, um, please do make a donation so we can keep this work going and expand it, because that's what we want to do. We want to expand it so that we can reach more souls who are hungry for Christ. Uh, also, what helps a lot is sharing these videos. 
um, on your social media, uh, email them to people. And you can do that by going to our YouTube channel. Uh, here comes the link to everybody right there. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, watch the videos if you uh, you can also like them, uh, hit the thumbs up, hit the little bell that will give you notifications every time there's a new video. Um, it helps with the YouTube algorithm. And I hear a lot of people who make YouTube videos say like and subscribe. So there you go, like and subscribe. Um, it really does help spread the word and the work of what we're trying to accomplish with this Becoming Byzantine series. So like I said, today we are talking about Christ our Pascha, paragraphs 470 through 532, two holy mysteries, one matrimony, the second holy orders, the mysteries of service. And then we'll also talk about some additional church services there towards the end. But first, talking about the holy mystery of crowning, as we call it in our Eastern Catholic churches. Um, the Catechism does a really awesome job spring the mystery of marriage in the sacred scriptures. We see in paragraph 470 to 484, uh, the Catechism does a great job placing scripture, placing marriage within the context of Scripture. So we see the roots of God's plan in Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, creating the male and female, complete, uh, creating them uh, with complementarity and with the command to fill the, to be fruitful and subdue it. And then we get to the Gospels and we see our Lord elevating marriage through his witness at the wedding at Cana. So, Father Michael, I'd like to start with you. Um, meditating on those passages from Scripture, um, what can we say about how Christian marriage participates in salvation history, um, in salvation in general? What is God's meaning and purpose for Christian marriage? Well, it's uh, ultimately for the sanctification not just of the spouses and the family but the entire church uh, i would say that uh, that marriage has that effect um i i've been i've been thinking about the i love the mystery of marriage i'm not married everyone and i love marriage and and the reason is is that in marriage the lord restores the relationships between adam and eve now within uh, the husband and wife. So they, in, in a little way, they become like a, a small new Adam and a small new Eve. And the domestic church is actually in 4, 470, paragraph 470, where it talks about Christ to create a domestic church, a Christian family in marriage. And it's when that's restored and the, there's an ability to love anew and afresh according to what was in paradise, you know? And uh, it's not easy because we're still living in a world that is being saved and we're in a, and we ourselves are being saved, right? But uh, for, for the domestic church, it, this, is, this is the place where uh, it happens first and foremost. And, and that's attached also to the parish community and, and, and the worship of the Lord and so forth. Um, the spouses uh, emulate and reveal the love of Christ and his church. Christ the bridegroom and the church being the bride. And that's really, Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, I invite everyone to read that. Uh, some some um, with ears attuned 
to the church will, I think, easily welcome that. Those who have their ears attuned a little bit more to the world might go, um, that sounds a little weird to me because it uh, places the the wife uh, as the bride, um, the, the church, and, and so as the church is obedient to our Lord, so a wife must be obedient to her husband. At the same time, we have to keep listening because the husband is uh, representing uh, Christ and Christ gives up his life for the church voluntarily in order to make her pure, holy, without blemish, right, before the Father. In the same way, a husband is to lay down his life for his wife. And indeed, that will extend into procreation. And and when a husband and life, a husband and wife love each other and love each other into life with God's grace, we get to see that. We get to experience that and that just helps for us to continue to grow in uh, the image and likeness of God. We could go yeah. hours more into that, but I mean, but that's a short, short, to succinct uh, uh, answer. Short, but incredibly beautiful. Yeah. It really is. Now, as I've been married now for 13 years, and it's it's a mystery that just keeps getting richer and richer and richer. More headaches, more more gray in my beard, but richer and richer every day. So it's really a beautiful mystery of, of our Christian faith. Um, being as we're talking about marriage, um, and we've, Father Michael, you touched on the, the context of marriage within the culture a little bit, uh, topic head on. Uh, so Father Daniel, the catechism stresses that marriage is a, a union between one man and one woman. And of course, our, our culture no longer accepts us as, as true. Um, but this is something so fundamental mm-hmm. to our understanding of Christian anthropology, um, our understanding of the, the sacramentality of marriage. Um, really, it is, it's, it's kind of a pivot point theologically for so many different issues that the church can't change its teaching on this. But how do we present the church's teaching within the hostile environment of our culture you know how do we speak the truth in love you know so what are some pastoral strategies maybe that you've come across that have been successful in in teaching that truth well i think first and foremost we need to understand the why behind uh you know a marriage between one man and one woman uh uh that uh that really we're talking about a number of different dimensions here first the dimension of complementarity that God in creating man and woman uh, did did so as a way of of creating two complementary beings, uh, male and female, um, that together in their union create another person, um, and and this is the design at at our most uh, fundamental level, just at the level of biology, at at the level of humanity, uh, man and woman coming together creating a new life. And so in creating the covenant of marriage, God creates a context that welcomes that life and nourishes it and cares for it and brings it to maturity to become uh, another spouse to to another uh, man or woman, uh, to perpetuate this across the generations. And so this was part of God's divine plan. And that that this complementarity between man and woman it really forms the protective covenant in which self-gift is possible, resulting in another self. Um, so that that's that's part of the divine plan. I think it's it's inherent in our nature, and I think we recognize that 
um, despite the the development of certain technologies that seem to um, you know harness the power of fertility and misuse it and misplace it and and you know you can generate life but it isn't it isn't according to uh, the way we were created to generate life um, and that gets into a whole other section of the catechism which we'll we'll be getting into later but but the point being that this this protective covenant is important. And I think intuitively we know that. I think the other part of it is, is the exclusivity of that union. So, you know, I'm, I'm not marrying someone until someone else better comes along. You know, I'm, I'm, my commitment is exclusive and it's permanent. Uh, again, this speaks to the fact that it's within the marriage covenant, this permanency, this exclusivity this is the right environment in which to raise a child, to give a child a sense of security being the, being a child of a, of a mother and a father, psychologically, spiritually, uh, all these things are, are very important, and and that exclusivity is is also a, a challenge to us because the world uh, basically says you know when it comes to our own sexual desires, pleasure is is the the highest principle, uh, you know sexuality. Sex is all about attaining to to a certain level of pleasure uh, based upon what you want. But in marriage, you know, pleasure accompanies union, but it's it's in a sense secondary to the to the purpose of union, which is the generation of new life and the joining in sac- sacrificially uh, in in love between a husband and a wife. Which means that it's a sacrificial sort of act. Um, and it means that I'm going to give myself permanently just as Christ gives himself permanently to the church. So there's there's a lot of things that we're called to. It's a higher calling. And uh, these other things that are so destructive in our culture, I think we can point to a myriad of examples of why the neo-pagan approach just is simply not working. The secular neo-pagan approach that del- that intentionally rejects the Christian vision for marriage between one man and one woman is is creating a path of destruction. So this is the way to preserve, I think, what is innate in us naturally and how God has divinely ordered it. And I think the, the Christian vision of, of human sexuality and marriage is is the is the most life-giving path. So that would be, I guess, one one thing I would say. Yeah. All right. To, uh, continuing to kind of uh, talk about the uh, kind of the cultural destruction of marriage because it is something that's uh, very, very prevalent. I know Father Deacon Anthony, you work with a lot of college students. Um, and, you know, you, a lot a lot of uh, college-age students, they form their first, you know, relationships. They start to date. They start to think about their future and, and planning the future. Um, and I get a sense from looking at the culture that a lot of them, because the divorce rate is so high, you know, 50% plus, um, and people kind of treat... Uh, relationships like Kleenex, you know, it should be soft, strong, and disposable. Um, uh, a lot of, stu- a lot of people who reach that marrying age, they look at marriage and they go, eh, that's not for me. They might find someone they love, but they go, ah, marriage isn't for me. So in your work with college age students talking about marriage and, and family life, um, what are some strategies at which we can catechize young people and encourage young people, especially considering the vocation of marriage, to get married in the church? Yeah, this is a tricky one, because like you said, many of them have a a vision of marriage as being um, a disposable thing, 
because so many relationships are disposable. In, in a weird way, the way our culture works with the serial dating, it's almost like we're training people to break up. And many of the young people I work with have a hard time envisioning marriage as being a, a positive thing because they've seen so many broken relationships and broken marriages around them. It's not easy to reach them, but I think the key thing is to convey that there is a difference, a distinction between marriage as a fallen, broken human institution and marriage as a holy mystery, a sacrament through which God works. That's the key thing. Uh, in my Catholicism class, we spend some time on this. And we also offer a course on uh, marriage specifically, where we get into the sacramental nature of marriage. The goal is to give them a vision of what marriage is meant to be, especially marriage as a sacrament, marriage through which God's grace works. And many of them respond to that uh, because they know instinctively that marriage is hard. And there are challenges that you face in it. And presenting this as something, a vehicle of grace through which God can work to strengthen the couple, to strengthen the family, to heal and to transform them, that is appealing. That is appealing to those who are looking for something more. So I think as much as we as a church can separate the two things, you know, marriage is a civil institution, a fallen human institution, and marriage is a sacrament, I think that distinction is crucial here. I absolutely agree. Um, when you present the sacrament, the sacramental theology of marriage, like we're trying to do now, um, with Father Michael's answers and Father Daniel's, and there's there's such a depth and beauty there. Most people, I think, they think of relationships on a very surface level, you know, and they once you expose them to that deeper meaning um, that really touches the heart of the person, um, yeah, I think that can be pretty pretty powerful. Thank you, it, Father it, it is. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I do, too, is I explain to them about our Byzantine tradition, about the crowning ceremony yeah. and, you know, why there are these verses from Isaiah being sung. Right. You know, mm -hmm. verses about martyrdom, because ultimately, you know, marriage requires dying to self, a type of sacrifice. But ultimately, we take our first steps, you know, following the priest, following the church, because ultimately we can be strengthened to to flourish and grow through these challenges we're going to face. Yeah. Very, very good. All right, Father Michael, speaking of those crowns, I know a lot of uh, people, they come to a, a, an Eastern wedding for the first time, and they're very confused by what's going on here with these crowns. You know, I thought I was coming to uh, just a simple wedding, not a, not a coronation, right? Um, so could you talk for a couple of minutes about the symbolism of the crowns, what they mean, what that serves, you know, our, our tradition of of uh, the the right of marriage means, and then also, could you talk a little bit about that kind of particular Byzantine focus of the love of the couple extending into eternity? Sure, sure. I, I would say that the uh, the crowns are is a simple marriage, <laughs> so it's it's just natural. So uh, okay, so as I mentioned before, uh, as a husband and wife in Christ are elevated uh, to a new state, uh, so that uh, the love between them helps emulates the love of Christ in the church, but also reveals that love to everyone. <clears throat> the crowns are symbolic of of them actually becoming renewed, like. Uh, as a small n Adam and a new Adam and a small new Eve, just as Adam and Eve were given uh, stewardship 
over all creation, right, in, in the garden. And uh, they named the animals, they probably named the trees uh, and so forth, and um, probably had names for each other, you know, little, oh, hello, kitty, and stuff like that. I don't know. If I, I mean, I'm trying to make it this very human, but in the same way, the crowns represent that elevation uh, and the renewal in Christ of looking over their own little domestic church, their own little kingdom, in a matter of speaking, right? But at the same time, their crowns of martyrdom. And, and Father Deacon Anthony mentioned this, that in marriage, it's definitely a martyrdom. It's, it's, a, it's a giving of one life, of your life to the other. And, 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 that, and I was just telling everyone this morning in my homily about, on this, uh, about love cannot be held on to. Love has to be given. It's always a gift of self to another. And uh, and this is exactly what happens in marriage. It emulates the love within the Trinity, and it emulates the love that existed with Adam and Eve before the fall, and it it's renewed in Christ in the couple. So that those crowns represent that elevation, but the martyrdom, the martyrdom, which is a, a witness and a testimony to Christ and His love for us, and that the only way that the couple can love is because of Christ. Now, the eternal aspect of marriage that's uh, in the Eastern churches spoken about, um, there's, a, for the most part, in, in, in the modern age, I'll, I'll call it, like in the 20th century, it was uh, Father Meindorf in his book, Marriage and Orthodox Perspective, that kind of just blindsides a, a couple of a, a people, a few people, uh, because he makes mention of the eternal aspect of marriage without any reference at all. Um, so I, I've, I've done a little reading on this. And, um, and so Father Josiah Trenum wrote a uh, book. Um, oh, I just lost it here. I'm sorry. Um, there it is. It's called Marriage and Virginity According to St. John Chrysostom. And Father Isaiah Gillette does a nice little summary on the Orthodox Reform Bridge blog site. <clears throat> all that to say, that um, John Chrysostom uh, sees marriage, we're talking about John Chrysostom here saying that, he sees marriage uh, has, as an eternal aspect, but not, not that the marriage as we know it here on earth continues, but there, because everything gets transformed, we get a, 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 a pre-sight of that resurrected life at the transfiguration, and we also see after our Lord's resurrection how he's able to, uh, he, he's got the marks of his uh, wounds uh, of crucifixion, and yet he can walk through walls. So there's, there's a yes and no kind of thing uh, uh, of, of this uh, eternal aspect. Um, and it's not that, you know, you will remain husband and wife as you were on uh, here in earth, but it will be transfigured. The relationship will be transfigured. And my mother will always be my mother, my father will always be my father, you know, but not in the way that I know them as mother and father here. It'll be much more sublime. And, and everything gets transfigured at the end of time in Christ. Please, God, we will all participate in that. And uh, so this is the, this is the, I think what Father Meindorf was trying to express, uh, he's had this in his mindset, but the way he said it without any reference, you kind of go, whoa, 
uh, it made it sound like, as we know, marriage here will exist in heaven. And that seemed to contradict scripture a little bit, right? But um, but Father Gillette's um, summary of Father Josiah Trenum's uh, writings on this are very good. And I invite people to have a look at that. Thank you, Father Michael. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, that's, that's such a beautiful point that in eternity, all of our human relationships are transformed and transfigured. Um, but most, how couldn't that very intimate relationship between husband and wife also be elevated and transfigured as well, mm -hmm. which I think is, is the point that we're trying to make. And that's, that really is beautiful. Um, conversations with my wife before and she she gets a little frightened of eternity she says you know well if i get there well why why well, see you there and i said well first of all i hope so um you know but will we be married still it's just, she wrestles with that scripture and I, but once i you know explained here's our eastern perspective it, it was a great comfort and i think it is i think it is you know especially given how beautiful the sacrament of marriage is so thank you I was, I was just going to yeah, say, it's kind of like if we if we think about the crowning in marriage as what we it's an it's an entry point or it's a celebration in the kingdom. Anything that happens in the kingdom of God uh, resonates in eternity. It's a participation mm -hmm. in eternity. So the celebration of the Eucharist, will there be the Eucharist in heaven? Well, in a sense, no, because it's a provisional mystery. Uh, that's meant for our time right now, but in a in a very real sense, absolutely yes, because it, the fulfillment of what that only points to, uh, in earthly terms, uh, we'll, we'll see it in in revealed fully in heaven as we're entering into full communion with Christ. So it's kind of a you could see the same thing apply to crowning in marriage as as existing in the kingdom of yeah. God in eternity. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Father Daniel. All right, to switch gears a bit to our next mystery of service, the mystery of holy orders or ordination, Christ our Pascha 485 to 499 uh, talks about the, the priesthood, the diaconate, the episcopacy, um, those, those hierarchical orders of the church. So uh, Christ our Pascha 485 to 488 does really a beautiful job talking about Christ as our high priest. So I wanted to ask our priests on the panel of reflection how you've experienced Christ's high priesthood as operating through your own priesthood. So Father Michael or Father Daniel? Go ahead, Father. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess since I'm the I'm the newbie uh, priest here, I, you know, I I I've become more consciously aware of my participation in the priestly ministry of Christ as ascended. You know that he is he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's entered into the holy of holies, and anything that I do in my service in the church as a priest is really a participation in in his resurrected and ascended glory that i am simply the instrument of for the faithful that i serve and um and so i'm much more conscious of that i think in my 12 years of diaconate i had a sense of that but i but now that i'm 
I'm serving in this in this way. I mean, the West has a very developed theology of the altar, altar Christus, right? This is that you, you are another Christ. And I, I don't have that sense, not that I deny that, but it's, I, I do have a sense that I am participating somehow in that priesthood and, um, and that anything, I, the way I vest, you know, the words that I say, the prayers that I say, striving to become the prayer that I'm, the prayers that I'm praying, um, I realize that it's a participation in the, in the grace and glory of Christ's high priesthood. The other part of it that I realized is, look, there's only one priesthood of Christ. There are multiple ways to participate in that. And we talk about the priesthood of Melchizedek, the high priesthood of Melchizedek. The baptized participate in the priesthood of Melchizedek because there's only one priesthood of Melchizedek. Uh, their participation eucharistically is different than my participation in the sense that, of the service that I'm giving uh, to their priesthood. My The purpose of my priesthood is to serve their priesthood. Um, and, uh, and so I have a, this sense that we're all, as part of the mystical body of Christ, participating in the priesthood of Melchizedek in our own distinctive way. So I don't know if that's that's been kind of my reflection on it. I also, the, the last thing I'll say is that the words of John Chrysostom are my favorite here. He says, Christ appears when the priest disappears. So, so part wow. of it is learning to disappear. <laughs> bravo, bravo, bravo. So with, I'll turn it over to Father Michael. He can give his reflection. You know, there's a, um, uh, I don't know who said this, but it's, it's not about me. <laughs> it's about Jesus Christ. And, and, and so when I am serving as a priest, whether it be at the Eucharist, any of the other mysteries, in, in counseling just being with people that's that's the end my prayer is lord, lord uh make me like you you are a servant make me one too allow me lord to get down on my hands and knees and wash and kiss the feet of the people whom you give to me whom i serve allow me lord that my words get out of the way and your words are, are, are what are spoken, you know, like during a homily or a teaching. Uh, you know, I, I just uh, hosted a brother priest here for a few days, and uh, he tells the story of how um, one of his brother priests in his, uh, his eparchy, <laughs> he said that after a homily, <clears throat> an elderly woman came up and said, Father, that was a wonderful homily and everything. And he says, it's the Holy Spirit. And she said, it wasn't that good. <laughs> and so, um, you know, one of the things I've I've embraced since even before I was ordained, but really have embraced it since, is that when somebody offers any comment, whether it be, uh, thank you, Father, for a great homily. Thank you for the service. I thought it stunk. You know, uh, I think you did a horrible job. I always say, blessed be God. To thank God at all times for all things. Uh, and and to just to continue to, um, even in that, even in my own faults that that uh, have brought this person to this, this moment, that somehow the Lord can still work. And one, you, you want an example is, Father, and Father, Father Deacon, maybe you've experienced this, when you've done preaching, 
and and you kind of go return to the altar and kind of go well that was that was horrible and then at the end of the liturgy well it's one of the it's the exact thing i needed to hear the way you put it and that's when i realize i'm not in control here and so that and it just reinforces it's not about me it's about the lord jesus and to let him shine amen well thank you fathers for sharing and thank you for your priesthood we we rely we need our church needs more priests as well and more on that in a little bit when we talk about vocations but father deacon anthony um father daniel when he was speaking talked about the priesthood of all believers and we share in that kind of uh one pre that melchizedek priesthood and of course we we pick that up through our baptism when we put on christ and those roles of christ as priest prophet and king um, common priesthood of all believers can be very misunderstood um and it has been kind of microwaved and manipulated and you know kind of we want to clericalize the ladies sometimes so how how can we properly understand the priesthood of all believers what's that mean right so the priesthood of all believers uh, really refers to the priesthood of people in the church in relation to the world right so it involves three things you know priest prophet and king you know the priesthood is one of sanctification you're trying to sanctify the world sanctify those around us you know prophet is us being teachers to the world sharing the gospel message and king refers to leadership you know us showing leadership in the world so the priesthood of all believers is really focused on the people of god all of us really you know sanctifying the world you know teaching the world and leading the world but the ministerial priesthood is different uh when we talk about the holy mystery of holy orders, what we're really referring to is Christ ministering to the church. So the priesthood of all believers is about all of us as church ministering to the world, in a sense. The ministerial priesthood, the mystery of holy orders, is about Christ ministering to the church, to the people of the church, through ordained ministers. And, you know, the way that works is simply this. Christ works through weak, broken people who are ordained, and through that ordination, they're given the grace and the strength to be vehicles of Christ in a special way to strengthen the people of God. But like Father Michael said, um, you know, we have to get our own words out of the way. We have to get our own egos out of the way. So as ordained ministers, there is a grace available to strengthen us to do things we could not do on our own initiative, on our own power. But again, we have to get ourselves out of the way. And I've experienced this since I was ordained. You know, before I was ordained for a long time, I was a you know, theology professor and wrote things, did all kinds of videos and stuff. But after I was ordained, I found myself doing things I never thought I was capable of doing. And very often, it, it comes in unexpected ways and in humbling ways. Uh, that situation that Father Michael described, I've experienced that more times than I can count, where I gave a homily where I thought I bombed. And then afterwards, somebody came up to me and told me it was exactly what they needed at that time. And it's humbling. It's humbling that God can use us as his vehicles in a special way. I know it's tempting to, uh, to say we don't need you know, the ministerial priesthood or the, you know, the sacrament of holy orders because anyone can pr perform functions, right? Anyone can preach, anyone can do this, and we can do that. But it's not about functions. It's not about people fulfilling a task. It's about Christ working through his people to minister to them in a special way. And that's a very different thing than just fulfilling a function. 
Very true, very true. Thank you, Father Deacon. All right, two last things on holy orders that I want to touch on. First one I think is important because we have a deacon and a longtime serving deacon, Father Daniel, who took the plunge into the priesthood. Um, but one thing that is it's hard oftentimes to understand is how the diaconate ties into Christ's priesthood. So maybe, Father Daniel, do you want to touch on that a little bit and, and, and discuss how the priesthood ties into the, uh, or the diaconate ties into the high priesthood of Christ? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so the distinctions we're talking about between the hierarchical and the baptismal priesthood are very important because, uh, as I said before, these are two ways of participating in the priesthood of Christ. Uh, the, the royal priesthood of the baptized, all Christians, whether they're ordained or or lay people, participate in that royal priesthood of the baptized. The first garment that any ordained minister wears, uh, the stikarian, is a baptismal garment. Uh, and uh, it signifies, like St. Augustine says, you know, with you I am a Christian, for you I am a bishop, priest, deacon, whatever it happens to be. So our first call as ministerial disciples is to be faithful to that vocation to holiness. That being said, the way our calling works in terms of holy orders, we receive the grace of the Holy Spirit uh, to serve in unique and different ways. We are oftentimes serving these mysteries that we're going through right now, you know, the mysteries of initiation, the mysteries of, of healing, and the mysteries of, of service in the kingdom, a lot of what we do is in relationship to that. It's not the only thing that we do, but much of what we do pertains to these mysteries, these signs of the new covenant that we're in service to. Uh, the bishop is the principal minister, if you will, because he, is, he has the fullness of apostolic succession. He is truly the spiritual father to every congregation. He is the pastor. Uh, we have a throne in our church uh, that represents his ministry, his service as spiritual father to the community. Priests and deacons serve as delegates of the bishop. And uh, much of our ministry, even though, you know, we've received holy orders, it's not like all of a sudden we, we can unreceive holy orders once it's given, you know. Uh, but, but when we receive holy orders, you know, our, our relationship with a bit with the bishop is one of strengthening the bonds of the faithful in communion. I see the priest and the deacon, in fact, sort of like the left and the right hands of the of the one head, uh, to kind of borrow that that image of of the the Trinity. And so, you know, we have the bishop as the image of the Father. Then you have maybe I'm right-handed, so your predominant hand is the is the hand that oftentimes serves. That's like the presbyter. That's that's the priest who serves, who's leading. He's the image of the bishop's fatherhood as shepherd. The deacon is the image of the bishop's fatherhood as servant. It's one of the reasons why I appreciate in our tradition that we refer to our deacons as father deacon, because they're participating in the bishop's spiritual fatherhood in a unique way. And if you think about the relationship between the two hands, oftentimes the left hand is the servant to both the head and the right hand. They collab collaborate together. So if we're working in the vineyard of the Lord together. We're working together, collaborating um, based upon the direction of the one head. So that's one image I think that helps to kind of clarify you know, in one sense, the fraternity that exists between presbyters and deacons in service to uh, the bishop. Uh, at, at the same time, I think the, the deacon has a unique uh, intercessory role. 
that I think should be especially emphasized. He is an ordained intercessor in in the church. Even his placement, if you consider sort of the topography of the of the liturgical mountain that we're on every day we go into church, right? You know, where does the deacon stand? The deacon stands in between the priesthood of the, the altar and the priesthood of the nave. And he acts in an intercessory way by raising his orarian, offering petitions on behalf of the people. He's, <clears throat> he's guiding the faithful in their participation. He's representing the faithful oftentimes in the way he participates. He also uh, guides the priest or the, or the bishop, you know, asking them, you know, to bless uh, or to, or to pray, whatever it happens to be. You know, this, this kind of um, interaction between the diaconate and the presbyterate and the episcopacy, uh, all three of them working together, but the, but the deacon has a very special closeness to the faithful. Um, and, and I think in one sense represents an animator of the faithful's participation in the liturgy, represents their needs and interests and advocate for them to get their needs met. Uh, pastorally, that should be mirrored in uh, what happens in the what happens in the liturgy. Should be mirrored mirrored in terms of what's happening in the parish, where the the deacon is interceding, finding out the needs of the community, animating and getting their charisms active and used in the in the parish. Uh, their leadership is very real. So, so it is even though it's on the lower lower level of the hierarchical priesthood, it's still a unique participation, imaging Christ fully as intercessor as as servant, and uh, and is a gift to both priesthood of the altar and the nave. Very good. Thank you, Father Daniel. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I had to ask the question about the diaconate as a man of information for the diaconate. So I had to of course. get props in there. Uh, also, for our, Father Deacon, he wrote an awesome paper on the deacon as emissary that you can find on the EWTN website. Um it's one of those things I refer back to all the time, really a, a wonderful piece of theology on, on the diaconate. And we love our deacons. They, they serve our churches really, really exceptionally well. Um, and on that note, um, we need to talk about vocations, because as a small church, you know, the Eastern Catholic churches are, are relatively small. We're spread out um, throughout the country, uh, both in the United States and in Canada. We need more vocations to minor orders and to major orders. So I know this is a very broad question, but what can we as Christians be doing in our churches to help encourage vocations? Well, I, I would say that the uh, putting an emphasis on the domestic church, first and foremost, um, that um, that we truly are citizens of heaven and citizens of whatever local community we live here on earth and um and to and for families to grow in living their life truly as a leaven within society i think that that's first and foremost i think we need to start there but then then as uh as of course when even even um mothers and fathers and 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 single people um, but also as children as they're growing up, is to ask the questions, and it's not just the clergy that need to ask the questions, it's everybody within the, the, the Christian community to say, okay, what, what gifts has, has the Lord given to you? And, and, and where, where does the Lord want you to be 
within the church in continuing that mission to the world of reconcile everything to the Father, right? Some are going to be called to be servants to the poor. I mean, I mean, really like working in soup kitchens and working in, um, uh, in uh, you know, Habitat for Humanity, for an example, or stuff like that. Some people are very gifted with that. There are others who are going to be gifted in ministerial ways for the church in or in minor orders and major orders then there's others that the lord is calling to be alone and and uh that's monastics right and so and, and then there's others to be called to marriage to continue to reveal the lord in the love that uh, that families have <clears throat> so it's to point that out and to call people forth i think so make the questions and if you see something don't be afraid to go up and say hey have you ever considered marriage as your vocation? You know, and to have these type of uh, dialogues, I think, with each other. Yeah. Father Daniel or Father Deacon, anything to add? All right. I think you're absolutely right, uh, Father Father Daniel. Yeah. I, the only thing I would say is, you know, the church has a tremendous opportunity, and has within herself the means to cultivate vocations. And, and part of it has to do with, um, and I know we've had conver conversations off and on about, about this kind of thing, understanding uh, vocational development as a leadership development process. Uh, you know, the, the, the cursus honorum, for instance, which was, you know, actually borrowed from the, the Roman uh, military, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the way a person advanced in the military, exists within the church, for instance, through minor orders. So, so minor orders that Father Michael mentioned are, are, are a tremendous means of forming uh, a vocational and, and, a, and a clerical identity. And when I say a clerical identity, I mean a servant identity on the part of men who are discerning vocations. It gives them an opportunity as they, as they continue in their formation and advance with the blessing of the bishop uh, to, to grow as leaders in, in a parish community in a concrete way. And it helps them to discern. It helps their wives to discern. And it helps the parish and the bishop to discern, uh, the, you know, whether this is a person who should go on to the, the next level. Maybe they're called just to be um, a subdeacon for the rest of their, their life. Uh, maybe they're called just to be a reader. But it's a way of saying, look, they have the blessing of the bishop to serve in this capacity. And what they're doing in their service in the liturgy mirrors what's what's also happening in the parish. So if they're a reader, for instance, they're also an advocate for the word of God in catechesis. You know, they're they're advocating that that kind of formation. So they're 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 volunteering and they're growing. Um, and it gives them a much longer runway to prepare themselves for the challenges of ministry. If we only reserve this this cursus honorum, this movement in minor orders to formal programs where basically, you know, you get it on the same day you're ordained a deacon or, or just barely any time to really experience the joy of minor orders. We're not really treating the, um, uh, the ministry that that represents with the value that I think it provides to, to the church in, in vocational discernment. So that would be one thing I would offer is we need to open up the doors of minor orders uh, to men uh, as as a means of discerning and growing in their leadership. Yeah. Thank you, Father. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I get the sense as well with that 
that openness to minor orders also allows for greater organic growth of work of vocations at the parish level. Yes. You know, when a parish says, oh, man, our, our cantor, our, our main reader, you know, passed away and you've got no one to fill those shoes. Well, it's because you had no one in the pipeline. Right. He wasn't mentoring others. Yes. But if you have that eye for, all right, the, the main cantor is going to be training X, Y, and Z, and we're going to make tantra them readers. And then that subdeacons do the same. And you have this robust kind of liturgical ministry at your parish. It's much more organic than mm-hmm. having a guy have to say, oh, I know I want to go for the diaconate and dive right into that program. Um, yeah, and it's a lot more organic to me. I think it does. Absolutely. And, and what it also does, we have to shift our mindset away our, our mindset traditionally has been that, well, one priest in one parish is sufficient. That's, that's okay. So there, I, I kind of look at it like a continuum. We've got sort of a, a scarcity mindset, which says one priest for three parishes, that's sufficient. That, that, that turns the priest into a, into a sacramental dispensary, right? You know, that's basically all he has time for is to just get the sacraments out of the people. Then you have the caretaker mindset, which is I have one priest, maybe one deacon for one parish. I, I care for the congregation that I have. The apostolic mindset says, look, I need to ordain the number of clergy for the congregations I want to have. Every, every clergyman, minor orders up to major orders, they're apostles. They're participating in, in this apostolic ministry, which means we need to continue to develop this pipeline of vocations just not only for the backfilling, kind of like re- what you're talking about, like, you know, we uh, can't or can't make it one Sunday. Well, what do we do? Or, or if he's no longer here, it's to, it's to build in this, this sense of, okay, the best leaders build leadership in other people. We need to be building leadership in others, cultivating that sense of vocation and participation so that, you know, when a person is ready for the next uh, rank in their orders, we we provide that, and you know what? It it multiplies the effectiveness of the clergy together in this fraternity of clergy to serve a broader community. If we if we only operate with a scarcity mindset or a caretaker mindset, our church will never grow. Uh, we need clergy to make that happen. So, I've gone on twice. Sorry, but that's that's just my my sense. I feel like we mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a cult a mindset we need to to change and, and cultivate. I think so. Thank you, Father Daniel. All right, um, this last section of the catechism that we're going to talk about today, paragraphs 500 to 532, segues nicely into what we've been talking about with vocations. Um, one section is on monasticism. Um, we don't see many monks and nuns in our church anymore. Um, our monasteries are spread out, and maybe there's not one near you, and um, maybe sometimes a, a Byzantine Catholic can go through his entire life and never meet a monk or a nun. So, Father Michael, I wanted to ask, um, being as monasticism seems to be receding, um, what role does monasticism play currently in our church, and, and how can we as faithful encourage monastic growth? I think monasticism is... a an incredibly important part of the life of the church. It it started at the beginning of the church. Our, our Lord himself kind of went off on his own to pray, right? So if we have monks, it's his fault, okay? <laughs> but in, in the early church, as, as the church grew, uh, 
there are some men and some women who left the cities and the towns in order to be alone, in order to, you know, hear the Lord. We think of Anthony the Great, uh, one of the first monks and so forth. Uh, in in the uh, Ukrainian Catholic tradition, we think of Theodosius um, up in the Kievan Caves Monastery and so forth. We, we, we all have every one of the Eastern churches has a, has a main monastic uh, person. <clears throat> I remember uh, really my first encounter with monasticism was at Holy Transfiguration Monastery in Redwood Valley, California in 1992. I went for the uh, month-long Shaptitsky Summer Institute uh, intensive where I took three master's level courses while living a monastic schedule. And I and I stayed I stayed almost a month after that just to live as as much as I could as as a monk. Um living I had my own little cabin they gave me. I worked in the morning on whatever the abbot gave me. And in the afternoon, I read, and I prayed all the all the hours with them. And it's 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 really a a, a monastic a monastery or any monastic, even if they're hermits, they leave the world not because they hate the world, but it's actually for the love of the world that they leave the world. It's so that they can they can intercede for the world while they're alone and apart from the world. And a lot of people go, well, that's that's not good and everything like this because they don't really think it's going in the world. I'll tell you something. 1992, the, the internet was really not available to us, right? We didn't have social media or anything like that. We didn't have websites. But that monastery knew everything was going on in the world because of people coming and going. And a monastery is like a powerhouse. Because of the devotion, the dedication... And and leaving the world for the sake of the world, um, they're they're like a powerhouse, and so we need monasteries for one for the intercessory power, uh, prayer. Number that's number one, and two, as a, as an example for all of us in our day to day lives, to make the Lord like to really as an example for Him to be number one in our lives. Like everything is for the Lord, rather than as I think most Christians come to some point in their life he, the lord kind of sinks back to one of many things that we uh our ideals which we follow but the, the monastery helps to bring that to the forefront again all, all all monasteries all monastics so um in a short answer uh they're the powerhouses we need them and and we need to foster them unfortunately we don't have a monastery in canada not 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 one not one eastern catholic monastery and and so um, there's been an attempt, and I think there'll be another attempt uh, very soon. Um, but um, but but uh, so please, uh, I know you have a few in the United States, so please remember us in your prayers. Um, it's often uh, also a place for spiritual direction. Mm. Um, that this is a a starets or an elder to teach someone about the spiritual life is almost almost not completely. Uh, lost here in North America, uh, and I really believe that the Lord and, and the example of the monastic communities in the states themselves, the uh, of the bringing that back, and people are hungry uh, for a spiritual life, and, and the monastery is really um, a beautiful place to to dis to rediscover or discover for the first time for some.
Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Father Michael. Yeah, I I myself have benefited spiritually greatly um, by visiting. I visited Christ the Bridegroom at the end of my fourth year in uh, diaconate studies. Uh, spent a couple of days there and just they are wellsprings in the desert is what they are. Um, they are the, those spiritual oases that we as as busy lay people, we need that refreshment from time to time and to to experience that living out of their that baptismal call in the intense way that monasticism represents we we need that we need that um so yes absolutely prayers for the establishment of not only one but many eastern catholic monasteries in canada and the united states we need more of them absolutely thank you all right, Father Daniel, uh, we're coming down here to the end, but uh, we need to talk about uh, funeral. Um, so a uh, baby priest, um, you've had the experience of uh, anointing people, assisting them as they're transitioning from this life to the next, and then covering funeral services and, and things like that. Um, is there a particular aspect of either that service of anointing or being at a sick person's bedside or, you know, the, the funeral rites, is there something specific that pops out in your mind about our, our theology of death and what it means? Yeah, yes. I, I, I would just briefly say this, um, you know, in, in the, in the, the theology of the fathers, there are really three, births in this life. And I think uh, Archbishop Joseph Raya makes reference to this in one of his works. Uh, there is the, the, the birth, the natural birth that comes from our mother's womb. That's the first birth. The second birth is our birth into Christ in, in the font of the church. And, and the church becomes our mother and we become a child of God. The third birth is the birth of death. And that is our birth into eternal life. Christ has so conquered death that death itself becomes a, a way of being born into eternal life um and and so i think part of what i see especially in the services of the church even though you know you have this lamentation that's that's going on uh, i was reading uh one of the passages in the office of christian burial uh, in the beginning, you called me from nothingness and favored me with your divine image. Since I transgressed your commandments, you returned me to the earth from which I was taken. Restore me to your likeness that my original beauty may be renewed in me, or that, that my original beauty may be renewed in me. I mean, it's a beautiful passage in prayer. I, I think the, the the sense of hope with regards to death, that love has conquered death, love is stronger than death. Uh, that uh, the, the veil separating this life from the next is is rather thin, <laughs> and and so this uh, understanding that we are in communion, the communion of the saints, um, that when we're praying for the person as they're lying there in state, the reverence shown to their body, that you know the body is the person, it's it's still there with us, and we're reverencing uh, this image of God uh, that is uh, that is present. I think that that loving reverence towards the body uh, is is one of the things that really is unique in our tradition because we know in the hope of resurrection our bodies will be restored to us in unity with our soul, and so that's why there are two judgments, right? You have the particular judgment as we enter into that eternal life where we face Christ, 
as we are in our soul. And then the general judgment where body and soul are brought together and we have the fullness of the revelation of, of Christ as the word through whom all creation came into being now restores creation through his own resurrection and body and soul brought together some will go to eternal life and others will not go to eternal life uh and, and body and soul so there's this sense of the, the the full integrity that that's there and the reverence for the body and that this is a, a hopeful occasion uh that we will see our loved ones again so i find i find the the christian funeral as not just simply a celebration of life but a celebration of eternal life and that I think is the, uh, the the focus that our services bring to it. Yeah, very well put. Very well put. Um, yeah, I've only been to a handful of our funeral services, but the love and the compassion, especially uh, in in the waking of the body, um, that really impressed. That's something I didn't know about until our former pastor, Father Frank, had passed away, and being waked with the reading of the Gospels overnight um just beautiful that reverence and that that being with and that that desire to pray the words of our lord over the deceased you know and, and the proclamation of the gospel just really stuck with me really quite beautiful um all right as we wind down father deacon anthony the last word is to you um for many of our people who are um who maybe only attend services on sunday they never get an opportunity to uh, attend the Akathist hymn or a Molevin service. Uh, and these are beautiful, beautiful services. The, the Akathist, Akathist, can't say it, Akathist hymn. We pray during the great fast and the Molevin services for special needs. So maybe if you could talk about these two services, uh, where they come from and, and Eastern use them. Certainly. So the the Akathist to the Mother of God, uh, this actually goes back to the 6th century. The uh, The name Akathist comes from the Greek uh, word for sitting, you know, A before Greek word means without, so without sitting. This was traditionally a service that was done originally as an all-night vigil, and people would stand through the whole thing. So that's why it became known as the Akathist. Uh, but it's calling upon the intercession of Our Lady, and it's honoring Our Lady. Uh, interestingly enough, it has a pretty cool structure to it. There's a preface at the beginning, and then there are 24 stanzas. If you look at it in the original Greek, those 24 stanzas go through the Greek alphabet. So the first word in each stanza begins with a letter in the Greek alphabet, beginning with alpha and ending at omega, which is highly symbolic. But really, uh, this prayer is significant for many reasons, but one of them is there have been multiple occasions historically in which uh, people were in danger in Constantinople and other places. And they, as a people, would pray this prayer and they'd be miraculously saved. Uh, there are numerous stories of this in the history of Constantinople being threatened and people praying this prayer as, as a group, you know, and having miraculous, miraculous events. Like one time they're about to be attacked by a fleet of ships and a storm, you know, came and uh, steered the ships away. What's remarkable is a lot of the stories surrounding the Akathist and miraculous rescues and whatnot uh, parallel stories in the West about the Rosary. Uh, there are similar stories in the West about cities being threatened and Europe being threatened and people praying the Rosary and experiencing you know, miraculous events. So it's kind of cool. In many ways, it's like, in some ways, it's the Eastern counterpart to the Rosary. <clears throat> now, the uh, 
Moleben services, well, that, that word actually means supplication. It's something you find primarily in the Slavic tradition. And it's based upon the paraclesis service, which in turn is based upon the matins. So there's some similarities in the structure to matins. Now, what's the purpose of this? Was primarily a prayer of supplication and thanksgiving uh, for specific intentions often. And the reason this began is because, you know, historically, the divine liturgy is prayed at a certain time, only on certain days. And the divine office has fixed times. Now, today we might be a little looser with this, right? When we celebrate the divine liturgy, when we celebrate the, the elements of the office. Uh, but historically, people were more strict about this. But sometimes people wanted to pray at other times, at a time in which there wasn't a divine liturgy, or at a time in which there wasn't a, you know, an office prescribed, you know, matins or vespers or whatnot. So this is a service that has some flexibility as to when you can do it and also where you can do it. The other services traditionally were done like in a church or a chapel. Uh, you can do a moleben anywhere, you know, in a house, you can do it outdoors. So the flexibility of it in time and in location is a big thing. But also there are occasions in which you really want to pray focused on something. Perhaps you have a dire need of some kind. You want to have a focused prayer on that. A moleben is a great way of focusing on a specific intention or a specific saint or a specific event. Great. Thank you very much, Father Deacon. A lot of that history I didn't know, so that is very informative. Thank you very much. Sure. And we've come to the end of our time today. A lot of ground covered, as always. Uh, but I'd like to thank Father Michael Wynn, Father Deacon Anthony Dragani, uh, Father Daniel Dozier. Always great to be with you guys to discuss uh, these matters of faith. So important to um, our life as Eastern Christians um, and our our ever striving for sharing Jesus Christ with the world. So thank you all very much for, for coming together to, today to discuss these things. Um, always a fun time. So, thank you, Rob. Um, Father Michael, would you mm. mind leading us in a closing prayer? Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for all the many gifts that you have bestowed upon us this day, the gifts uh, that uh, are for our own holiness, but also the gifts where you've called us in order to reveal your love to the many others we have met. <clears throat> we ask you, Lord, to continue to lead us into holiness, to continue to heal us of all infirmities, and to draw us together, Lord, that in our love we may reveal you to the world. And we give glory to you together with your Father, who has no beginning, your most holy, good, and life-creating spirit, now and forever and ever. Amen. 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 Well, thank you all again very much. Thank you. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever.